Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Good morning. Thanks to you all for praying for me this last week. Had surgery on Friday. It went well. I've got two McDonald's straws sticking out the back of my leg, draining stuff. Not really McDonald's straws, but that's what it looks like. Um, and so I'm uh, limping around a little bit, but doing much better. So appreciate your prayers on that. Uh, but this morning, as we open up God's Word together, uh, you know, let me ask you this question. Do you know what the best thing that God has ever done for you is? The best thing God has ever done for you. Uh, invisible gold star, uh, if you said, well, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, become fully human so that He could die in my place on the cross for my sins, to take the penalty I deserve and to give me new life through His resurrection from the dead. That's the best thing that God not only has ever done for us, but could ever do for us. Amen? By sending Jesus to die on the cross. Thank you, Rod. Uh, uh, sending Jesus to die on the cross in our place for our sins, taking our penalty that we deserve and giving us new life by grace through faith in Jesus. We have eternal life. Amen? This is the best thing God could ever do for us. So let me ask you this question. Those of you who are scholars, what's the second best thing after that? Well, if the, if the best thing can be summed up by this, we, we, let me give you a, a $10 theological word for it, okay? The best thing that God did for us is He justified us. We were declared in the sight of God by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. They call that, in the, in the book of Romans, justification. You are declared righteous before God. You are justified. The second best thing that God could ever do for you is that He would continue to work in you. That He would continue goodness to you after your salvation helping you get free from your sin in the here and now. Now, there's a theological word for that, too. It's called sanctification, okay? Which is, well, like I say, about a $10 word that means that God is progressively working in your life to make you holy, to make you more like Jesus day by day by day, okay? So best thing He could ever do for you is save you from sin and death and hell by His death on the cross. Second best thing is to give you the Holy Spirit to live within you to enable you to become more like Jesus day by day by day so that His goodness doesn't stop when He saves you. His goodness continues day by day as He works in your life. Okay? So, uh, you need to remember this. If you, if you understand nothing else, understand this. That holiness sounds kind of terrifying to us, right? Like we're not sure if we want to be holy. But God is at work to make us holy. Because holiness is life. And it's freedom. And sin is slavery and death. 
And so God is at work in our life now to set us free from slavery to sin and death and make us holy so that we would have life and freedom. And so one of the best things we can ever learn is how to kill sin instead of letting it grow big in our lives and bring death to us. And the passage that we're looking at today is all about that very thing. How to kill sin instead of letting it grow big. And the way that we do it is detailed in the passage we're going to look at. And so I want to read it with you if you are able and can stand as we read um, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. Okay? This is what the word of the Lord is for us today. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that your goodness to us doesn't stop at the moment that we are saved. But you work to keep on saving us in our daily experience from the effects of sin on our lives that we might live a holy life, a life of freedom, a life of joy, a life that as we are faithful to follow you by your Spirit, Father, and empowered by Him, one that looks increasingly like Jesus. Father, we all want that. Help us to see how to get it from this passage. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you read this passage, it can seem like a bunch of random commands, right? Like, like maybe a, a note your mama left you when you were at home, right? Do the dishes, uh, wash the laundry, etc., right? And it can seem kind of like that. But what ties all this together uh, is the context of the previous verses, particularly verse 18. At the end, uh, in the previous passage, verse 18. Uh, James is talking about uh, the, the fact that God has been good to us. That of His own will, He has brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This is the natural result, in other words, of God saving us. These commands that God is giving us through James in 19-27 to are the overflow and the result of the fact that God has saved us. Uh, he has demonstrated His goodness to us supremely in giving us new life through faith in Jesus. And these commands are more of God's goodness. 
They are the good things we should pursue in our life because God loves us and has been and is so good to us. And the first command is in verse 19. And, and let me just say, just speaking personally here, this is an area of growth for me. Okay, verse 19, where it says, My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If there's an opposite for each one of those, that is often me. I am, I am uh, often slow to hear, uh, quick to speak, and quick to anger. Right? You don't have to testify with me, but some of you all, I can see on your faces. You're like, yes, that's me too, right? By God's grace, I'm getting better at listening. I'm better at learning to control my words. And I'm also seeing God's work in my heart to uproot the sinful parts of me to tempt me toward being quick-tempered. And beloved, this is something we can all struggle with, amen? I'm an extrovert, so talking versus listening comes very naturally to me. Uh, it's kind of hardwired into my soul, but let me explain this to you. Explanations are not excuses. Explanations are not excuses. And so even though that is why that is a tendency for me, that's not a reason that justifies it. And you can be an introvert and still be a bad listener, by the way. <laughs> okay. You can still rather hear your own voice than someone else's. And all of us can be prone to anger because we all tend to put ourselves and our desires and our preferences and our schedules at the center of our lives. And when other people don't live up to our expectations and self-created priorities, then we not only get angry with them, we feel justified in our anger toward them. And that's why James gives us verse 20. He says, remember, your anger doesn't produce God's righteousness. Can I just tell you that when I'm angry, I don't feel unholy in that moment. I feel like the avenging angel of God upholding the standards of right and wrong in the universe, right? Like, this is right that I am angry, right? I think I am doing the right thing. I think I'm bringing about the rectification of some great evil being done in the world. James 1.20 punctures our pretensions, though. He says, God's righteousness doesn't come into the world through my anger. A word of encouragement, not through yours either. It's a timely reminder for all of us, whether you're dealing with people at work, whether you're dealing with the person that you married, whether you're dealing with your family members, whether you're dealing with the checkout girl at Kroger, the cable company. Okay, now I'm into meddling, right? Um, the, the insurance agent on the other end of the phone that doesn't want to pay your claim, right? The company that picks up your trash that hasn't for two weeks, Right? People voting for someone or something different than what you picked and what you think would be wisest and best. Your anger and mine does not produce the righteousness of God. 
We all need to internalize that truth. That the righteousness of God, you know, when we pray, you know, I don't know how many of y'all pray the Lord's Prayer or follow it as a pattern for, for prayer, but, but, you know, there's that section that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? God's kingdom does not come into the world because you got mad at somebody who was stupid, right? Or some other adjective that you can fill in, right? God's kingdom doesn't come into the world that way. The righteousness of God doesn't reign because you and I got frustrated or started yelling at the television or whatever, okay? Our anger does not produce God's righteousness. And so the encouragement here is, if you're angry, repent. You aren't the standard of right and wrong in the world. God is. And you aren't the one to whom all must bow. And, and to act as if you are is to actually be engaged in a pretty serious form of idolatry. Where you have erected yourself as the person to whom the rest of the world must conform. Right? James is telling us this, by the way, not because he thinks this is um, this is not something we struggle with, but because he knows that it is. And he is wanting us to be freed from the trap of sin that destroys relationships. You ever been friends with somebody who never listens to you? And who always likes to hear their own gum slap? And who, and who at the slightest provocation, is angry? How great is that relationship, right? They're like, man, I cannot wait to get away from them. Right? James is telling us this because he's, he is serious about the fact that sin destroys relationships with people. People whom we love. People who may love us. So let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of human beings does not produce God's righteousness. Look at verse 21 now. Uh, we're told to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now I should tell you that those are terms that describe moral evil. Okay, These things that James has just been describing, these are not quirks. These are not idiosyncrasies. These are not things that can be kind of swept away with, well, that's just me. Or that's just the way I am. James says, put away all rampant wickedness and filthiness. These are moral evils that he's telling you to get free from. In other words, this is a big deal, right? We don't, we don't normally think of our unwillingness to listen to other people as a moral evil, but it is. It's a species of what he calls rampant wickedness. And so the word put away means something like throw these things out of your life. Put them away. It's not, it's, not, it's not put away like, you know, 
put away in storage for a while like Christmas decorations and get them back out and at some other time later. It's put away in the sense of we put it out to the curb and let the trash guys pick it up. We're supposed to purge these things from our lives and chuck them into the dumpster of who we used to be instead of who Jesus has made us to be by His grace through our faith in Him. Well, how do we do that? James, this is tough, man. How, how are we supposed to do that? He says, rest of verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. And what James is speaking here of in the, the end of verse 21 is learning how to submit to the Word of God that you have received. The Word of God has been planted in your heart. And it's the Word of God that shows us where our sins lie. And when we receive it in the sense of gratefully putting ourselves under its authority and allowing the Word of God to direct our lives, then we get free from sin. When James speaks of being saved here, says it's able to save your souls, I don't think he's talking about our justification, our eternal salvation. I think he's talking about in the practical, here and now, day to day, being saved. Our sanctification. The saving that happens is that your soul is rescued from the burden and slavery and death that sin brings into your life right now as God's people. Because Sin kills whatever it touches. Amen? Sin kills everything it touches. If you sin against your spouse, you're going to damage that relationship. If you keep sinning against your spouse, you're going to wind up divorced. Sin kills everything it touches. Everything. If you're slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to be angry, you can watch your relationships disintegrate. Even if it's the person you swore before God that you would love until the death. The same thing is true in every relationship, every kind of sin, everything that you do that is a, is a sin destroys. And James reminds us that, look, there's only one way out of that. And it's by submitting to God's Word by putting it into practice. And when you do that, you find rescue and freedom. It's salvation from the death that sin brings into your life. And then he goes on. Uh, you get free by obeying God's Word. Okay? By hearing it, and doing it, verses 22-25. I love this section. This is one of the most well-known parts of the book of James. Uh, his exhortation here is not merely to hear the Word, but to do it. This is a reality for a lot of us. You go to a solid Bible teaching church, Chilcothy Bible Church, where Bible is our middle name. Okay, we, we teach you the Word of God. We do. And we'll teach it to you in lots of different ways. You can read the Bible every day with me through the version if you want. You can go to Sunday school. You can go to women's Bible study. You can go to a men's Bible study. You can be in a discipleship group. We'll give you 
books of theology that we will walk through with you. You can learn God's Word and as much as you will eat, we will give you. Okay? But here's the deal. Here's the deal. As much as we love feeding you God's Word, and as much as we enjoy teaching you, there is a danger for all of us. And that danger is serious and real. It is to confuse our hearing with our doing. And our knowing in our head with obedience to what we know. Okay? And if that is and if it's the living Bible, obey God and do what it says. Right? Whichever one you're going to read and obey is the right one to get. Because here's the deal. When you stand before God and you're evaluated for your reward in heaven, because by the way, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know if you know that, but at the end of your life, if you're a believer, you will stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And it's very much like the judge's podium at the Olympics. Okay? And you're evaluated. How faithful were you to follow Jesus during the life that He gave you? This is like the evaluation of the Master with the talents or the ten minas or something uh, you know, along those lines. How faithful were you? And those who are faithful receive more reward. Much like at the Olympics. You get a gold medal if you do the best. Right? In fact, the book of Revelation gives a whole list of seven different rewards that you can receive as someone who follows Jesus faithfully in this life. Right? But what he is not going to ask you is how much you knew. What he's going to ask you is how much did you do of what you knew? Right? He won't ask you what you learned or were taught but about whether and to what extent you did what the Word of God commands you to do. You don't do it if you mistake hearing and understanding what it requires with obedience, then you deceive yourselves into remaining captive to sin in ways that you don't have to be. And on top of that, that you don't have to suffer from being. Let me give you an illustration on this, okay? Years ago, I heard uh, Pastor Francis Chan talk about this. And he said, you know, sometimes people take Jesus' great commission um, and they, they're like, you know, uh, okay, so Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all the people groups all over the world, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, right? He says, and they take it like this. He said, he said, suppose I told my daughter, I'm going to the store. While I am gone, I want you to clean your room. Okay. Do you understand what I mean by clean? Yes. Okay. He says, now suppose I come back and I walk into my daughter's room and, she, and the room is still the same filthy style it was when I left. And I ask her, did you understand that while I was at the store, you were supposed to clean your room? And she says, yep, I definitely understood that, Dad. 
In fact, what I did was I memorized it. And I made some artwork that I hung on the wall that said, clean your room. And then I had a, a, a couple of friends over and we had a study on what it would look like if I obeyed you. And he said, but the room isn't clean! Right? And we run the risk of doing that same thing. Of, of memorizing it and maybe getting a pretty piece of art that features the Scripture that Jesus said to do this. But not actually doing it. Amen? Not ever sharing the Gospel with a single solitary person because that would be scary. Not ever making disciples because that would take time. But we, we did have some friends together and we looked at what it would look like if we obeyed. Right? And James is, is calling that out right here. He says, when you look in the mirror of God's Word, and God reveals to you an area of your life that you need to change as clearly as a mirror reveals that you have spinach in your teeth, then you take action, right? And in fact, by the way, it's interesting here, the Word says, do not be like a man who looks in the mirror. Okay? And the word there, there's two different words for man in the, your Bible. One is man as speaking of humanity in general. And then there's the word uh, that's here, man as opposed to woman. Right? How does a woman look in the mirror? Like when I got married, I, you know, I had like a tube of toothpaste, a toothbrush, comb, some shampoo, some soap, deodorant, razor, shaving cream. Right? It all fits in a little bag like this. I get married. What do I have, men? I have a city of stuff across the bathroom counter, most of which I cannot identify. Right? Why? Because men and women do not look in the mirror the same way. Right? A guy looks in the mirror to see if he is street legal. Right? A woman looks in the mirror to see if she... If, if what she sees reflected back to her conforms with what her vision of what she would like it to be. Right? Women have bad hair days. Men are happy they have hair. Alright? Uh, and so he's saying, don't be like a dude looking in the mirror. Make adjustments. Make adjustments. See, what, see what's out of alignment here and fix it. Right? Don't look in the mirror and go, yeah, I guess it's fine. And just go on. <laughs> okay? Yeah, that, no one will notice that, that bit of black pepper in between my front teeth. It's fine. Right? Don't do that. Don't do that. He says, in fact, look carefully into the Word. It's the perfect law. You know why it's the perfect law? Because it doesn't bring condemnation, it brings freedom. It sets us free from sin whenever we obey it. It sets us free from sin whenever we obey it. And if you persevere in obedience to it, you get a blessing. 
Because here's the deal. There's a big lie that is out there that says obeying God gives you a terrible life. That is the furthest thing from true. Obeying God will make your life much more blessed than whatever you crafted for yourself on your own. Let me just testify on this. I can tell you all of the stories. I've got 23 years worth of pastoral counseling where people decided they were going to go their own way, figure it out on their own, and it's just miles of wreckage behind them. In fact, there's a great story about a World War II pilot, one of those P-51 Mustangs. He was flying low over the jungle. It's great. Okay, I've never been in an airplane like that, but apparently if you fly right down over the treetops at 400 miles an hour, it is a great rush. Okay, I'd like to try it. But anyway, he was just buzzing right over the treetops and just, I mean, just skimming right over at, like I say, at 400 miles an hour. If you think you have a little time to adjust at 80, at 400 you have like nanoseconds to make any kind of a fix. And what he didn't see was right up in the part of the jungle he was flying over, there was a limb sticking up about 20 feet in the air. And he said, and when I woke up, after ejection, I was hanging by my chute looking back on a quarter of a mile of flaming wreckage. Right? And with a lot to explain to his CO. <laughs> All right? Um, you got to explain to your sergeant why you were doing what you should not have been doing with that airplane, right? And, and the deal is, is that James, because he loves us, and, he, and because God loves us, he is trying to help us hear what James is saying here. Your life is blessed when you obey God. And when you don't, what happens is you're looking back over a quarter mile of flaming wreckage. So don't do that. Don't do that. God's Word sets you free from sin and you experience God's blessing. Because one of the promises of God is that we get life after death, right? That's what justification is all about. We get life after death. So your sanctification is about how you get life before death. Before you die, that you get to experience God's blessing now as you obey God, as you submit yourself to His Word, and you get joy and freedom. And the enjoyment comes from doing the Word, not just hearing it. Amen? Do the Word, don't just hear it. And then you become more loving and more holy. These two things go together. Uh, that's the point of the last two verses in this section, verses 26 and 27, that actually putting the Word into practice makes you a different kind of person. You become more holy personally, and you become more loving toward other people in very practical ways. So in verse 26, get the first one of these, which is bridling your tongue. Have you all ever been around horses? My dad had a couple of them when I was in college and seminary. And when I was growing up, um, I loved to go to the state fair, the Indiana State Fair, still a big deal. And you could go and you could walk through the horse barns. You ever do that? And you, they have these, both they have 
you know, saddle-bred horses, and then they also have these giant draft horses, right? These Percherons, Belgians, Clydesdales, the ones that, you know, like their back end is like this much taller than my head, right? And they have hooves like this size. And you and Dad would always be like, okay, you got two places you can walk in a horse barn. Either right down the center line or right up next to the horse. Right? Why? Because if he gets an extension on that leg and hits you in the head, you will see Jesus. Right? That'll be the, the next thing that happens is that you will see Jesus. Because that animal weighs 2,000 pounds and has enormous, enormous strength. A pair of draft horses, uh, two percherons hooked together, can pull 32,000 pounds. They're strong. And if one of them kicks you, if, if your head still is attached to your body at the end, like I say, you're probably still seeing Jesus either way. And But you know how you can control that animal? With about a four-inch piece of steel in his mouth. You attach it to a leather bridle, you put it on him, and you can lead that dude around, make him do whatever you want. You can sit on his back, make, turn him to the left, turn him to the right, back him up, make him go forward, make him stand still, make him turn circles. You can do whatever you want to him because you put a bridle on that animal. right? An animal big enough to take your life and strong enough to make it happen, you can control with a bridle. James is going to have more to say about this later on in the book. But the idea is, is that a bridle gives you control over something and a bit gives you control over something that you otherwise can't control. And so he talks about controlling your tongue and when and why and how you speak. And refusing to do that is another form of self Deception. Do you see that? Verse 26. You are deceiving yourself if you do not control your tongue. Because Christians should not talk like everybody else. What comes out of our mouth and what comes out of a non-Christian's mouth should not be remotely similar. Right? You shouldn't have a bunch of asterisk-type words that flow out of you. Or anger. Or cutting remarks. Or criticism. Or belittling. Or sarcasm. Or, you know, by the way, that what sarcasm means? The sarks is the flesh. And to be sarcastic is to be a flesh ripper. That's what it literally means in Greek. Okay? That's not the kind of stuff that should come out of our mouth. It's not the kind of thing that should come out of your mouth. And if you don't bridle your tongue, James says, I'm going to just let the word speak here, your religion is worthless. You profess with your mouth to follow Jesus and out of the other side of your mouth you curse and belittle and are cutting to your fellow 
believers, your other people who need to know Jesus, other people you encounter. James says, that can't be. One of these things is not true. Either you don't really know Jesus, or you need to put a bridle on your tongue. But if you won't do the former, we start to question the latter. Right? Um, okay. So, next one. In contrast to people who don't do that and deceive themselves, James gives us two examples of the kind of life change that God rewards. One is taking care of widows and orphans. In James' day, the widow and the orphan were the most powerless people in society. It was men, by and large, who worked outside the home. It was men who had remunerative jobs. And so if the head of your household, the husband or father, uh, died, then you were left in a very difficult, often desperate situation. You had no power. You had no wealth. Uh, helping a, a widow or an orphan could not benefit you anyway, but spiritually, right? And so James says, if you are a person who shows tangible love for the least powerful and the poor, you are a person who demonstrates a heart that has been changed by Jesus. And so it's therefore one way uh, of living out your changed life that God approves as pure and undefiled. And the second way, James points out, is keeping yourself unstained from the world. That is, being a person who doesn't live like, think like, talk like a non-Christian. You see how these two things are intertwined, by the way? On the one hand, we love the least of these. The least powerful, the least influential, the least uh, the least wealthy, the least able to ever repay me for how I've helped them. And on the other hand, we become God's holy people who separate themselves from everything the sinful world celebrates as good, but that God identifies as evil. Now hear this. We don't separate from the world in anything but our conduct. Amen? We separate from the world in nothing but our conduct. So we don't go live in a, you know, live up on a mountaintop somewhere and get away from everybody. I'm going to go be holy all by myself. Well, that works great until like any other human being enters into your little commune there, right? I can be super holy all by myself alone, right? But what kind of holiness is that? The kind that is unchallenged by the by being in relationship with literally any other human beings, right? So you don't separate from the world in anything but your conduct, your attitude. Because otherwise, how could you care for the most vulnerable people in society if you have walled yourself off from everybody? But at the same time, we don't live like the world does because we are living for God's glory and not the transient approval of the world. Amen? And so it's two things. It's love and holiness. Holiness and love that demonstrate a heart that's been changed by Jesus. By the way, let me just be really clear on this. James, over and over and over and over again, tells us in this book, these things demonstrate that you know Jesus. Right? 
He's not saying you do these things in order to be saved. He is not saying that. Not anywhere in this book does he say take care of widows and orphans and then, and then Jesus will reward you with going to heaven. That's not how a person experiences salvation from God. You, you gain salvation from your sin and from death and from hell in exactly one way. And it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. But if you are a person who possesses new life, if you've been born again, there ought to be some, some result from that. Right? Just like, just like if we, you know, when we had four kids, we still have them, but they don't live with us. Um, okay, or at least three of them don't live with us. But um, we, was it, when we were raising them, it was a near-run thing. Okay, <laughs> but uh, whether we would have four kids forever um, or not. It was like, I'm not sure you're going to make it or not. But anyway, um, but, but in any case, uh, we have four kids. And when each of them were born, there were signs of life immediately, right? One of them was they start squalling like they have lost their best friend, Right? It was warm where you had me, and now it is cold and bright and not very nice out here, right? And um, and they start squalling, right? How? Do, why do they do that? Well, one of the reasons is is that God has designed that that first scream to clear out some of the gunk out of their lungs because they're now in an environment where they breathe air, right? But there are signs of life that are there. They turn bright pink. And they and when you pick one up and pull it to your chest, like I did with every one of my little babies, they snuggle in, right? Why? Because that's what a that's what a baby does. Right? There are instincts that God has put there for the growth and development of that child. And in the same way, when you have been reborn through faith in Jesus, there are things that you start to naturally do, not because you're trying to gain the new birth, but because you have been born. You start naturally living differently than you did before you knew Jesus. Right? The Holy Spirit presence in your life ought to be working out change in you. One of the things it ought to be doing, for example, is causing you to not just hear the Word, but do it. Not to just talk about loving widows and orphans, but actually do it. Not to just talk about, well, I probably should put a bridle on my tongue, but actually begin to change the way you talk. These kinds of things are the very practical outworking of a real faith. Of a faith that's alive and growing. Right? So, we're going to need a lot of help. At least I'm going to need a lot of help to put this into practice. So I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to pray for us. Because Jesus' power is all sufficient to bring grace into my life to enable me to live like this. But my power is sufficient for not very much. So we're going to pray and ask for Jesus to supply the power to live according to the call that He's laid out for us here in, this, in the Word. So, if you'd pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, 
as we look at your word and we see what it calls us to, we realize very quickly that under our own steam, according to our own power and will, that that our willpower, our desire, our determination, our self-discipline is insufficient to the call to holiness that you've given us. Father, I pray that we would, rather than despair of being holy, that we would yield to your word and to your Holy Spirit. Uh, and that you would help us to grow in love for you so that this becomes much more natural to us. That we would receive with meekness the implanted word, as James says. That we would yield to your spirit and to the commands of your word and that as we grow in love for you, as we follow you because we love you and we experience your love for us, that this would become natural to us to put off that which is displeasing to you and to, and to reveal our love for you and becoming more like Jesus as we submit to your word and, and are empowered by your spirit. And Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.